Well, good morning. Good morning. I trust a few of you slept okay last night from that hearty welcome. Uh, well, uh, I enjoyed our time last night together, and I pray that the Lord used it in your life. And I uh, hope, from what I've heard, some good, fruitful conversation. Uh, I do want to start just by saying, apparently, I had a date this morning. Uh, there was supposed to be a supposed to meet a couple of the boys to go fishing this morning around 5:30. Where, where, where are you guys? Right here. Yeah. So that's the problem with sarcasm. Sometimes it's misunderstood. So when I said, yeah, I'll be there, I guess you didn't hear the sarcasm. In the <laughs> when I said, I'll be there at five, I was just kind of teasing like, oh, I'm going to be there before you. So I apologize for that. If we want to set up a real time to be there, I'll be there. I'll be there. So maybe tomorrow morning. Okay. So we can talk later. We can talk later. Um, but I do apologize for that. Um, I kind of feel bad about it. So, um, before we get to today's passage, and you can go, go ahead and turn to it, uh, Luke 23, I uh, was thinking, uh, just as we left last night, uh, it would have been very appropriate for us to end on the words of uh, Solomon, King Solomon, when he records in Proverbs, especially as we were coming off talking a little bit, mentioning the Scarlet Letter and all that kind of took place there, I felt like this one verse kind of wrapped it up in, in some sense, in, in a certain per, perspective. Solomon records, he says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as lion. I love that first part, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, because they continue to carry the guilt. They know they're guilty, they're, but they're hiding it. You can almost, you know, they're always looking fearful that someone is going to discover, but it's those who have put it out there that they're, they're not always looking over their shoulders, right? There is that freedom, uh, not, not the bondage of being discovered. So uh, I feel like our passage this morning, uh, Luke 23 uh, and the free to hope really is a uh, a good companion passage for us coming off of last night uh, with Zacchaeus. Uh, and as well, it, uh, it should be because uh, it stands to reason, right? Because we're still in Luke. And as we talked about, right, uh, New Testament writers have a purpose for writing. And uh, he's, he's keeping with his, his purpose here uh, in many ways. Uh, we're going to be focusing really on verses 39 through 43. But to really set the context, uh, let's, let's begin reading verse 33. I know you just sat down with you. I told you I was going to do this. Once you stand and honor the word of God as I read, I will pray once again for our time in the word, and we'll see what the Lord has for us. Luke 23, uh, beginning in verse 33. I know some of you have a different version. I'm reading from a New American Standard. I figure it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, good enough for me. So... When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, Jesus, and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers, the religious rulers, were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, uh, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord, as we spend this time now, uh, having already proclaimed your truth in song, may we now hear uh, intently and truly your words uh, that you have given to us this morning. As you have revealed yourself through your word, may we hear, may we understand, and may your spirit bring it to bear on our hearts and our lives, that we would not leave here unchanged, but more conformed to the image of Christ, knowing what he has done for us and how he has set us free indeed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you be seated? There's a, a, a story that says a man uh, was approaching, approached a little league game. And one afternoon as he walked, he, he asked one of the boys that was there in the dugout, he just came over, and he asked what the score was. And the boy responded, 18 to nothing. We're behind. And the man said, boy, I, I'll bet you're discouraged. And he said, why would I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten up to bat yet. Now, as much as in whatever you could say about that boy, he certainly had hope. Uh, maybe it was not uh, you know, something of substance, but he had hope uh, because, as he said, they hadn't even gotten up yet. As one person said, hope, uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless. Let me say that again. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to have a strength. Today we are going to look at hope. 14 years ago, again before Many of you were even alive. Our nation elected a president who ran his whole campaign on the promise of hope. 
That was it. Hope. Who is hope for? How does hope change the one who has it? Is hope attainable? And if so, what does that look like? Well, let me quickly just set our context here in Luke 23. Uh, we, if we would have gone back a little bit, we would have seen a series of illegal trials that Jesus went through. Uh, we would have seen his betrayal. We would have seen his desertion by those who had been following him for three years. We would have seen his interrogation if you're familiar with the New Testament and uh, Christ's crucifixion when he is taken and right they're, they're whipping him uh, 39 lashes because the uh, that's that's how they interrogated the Romans interrogated in the first century or how we find out if you're guilty or not we're going to interrogate you by the lashes and it was only 39 because they were by law only allowed 40 anything beyond that is considered to the point of death and those who were in charge had to make sure they didn't cross that line or they would be in trouble. So they only went to 39 just to play it safe in case they miscounted. But that was the interrogation part of it. And he is brought to crucifixion, uh, the most cruel way man has ever devised to put someone to death. And as we have already read, he is placed between two criminals, which is uh, fulfillment of... Old Testament prophecy. This encounter is at the heart of one of Luke's main themes, major themes, which we mentioned very briefly last night. But as he writes to Theophilus, is Jesus the real thing? Is Jesus the Christ? Am I pursuing the right thing here? And I would say it also couples with his theme of, uh, of Luke telling Theophilus, this is the kind of people Jesus saves. These are the type that he draws to himself. And we're going to be really focusing largely on one of the criminals. One of the criminals who is crucified there with Christ. And look at hope that is found in, uh, in Christ. So as your outline said, you'll see most of it is almost kind of already filled out for you. So you write down that which resonates with you. It's really point two where we're going to have to fill some things in, but left some space there for you, maybe to jot anything down that uh, really speaks to you this morning. But hope begins at hopelessness. We kind of already mentioned that in the introduction, but it begins at hopelessness. That's where you must start. Otherwise, hope means nothing. So who is this man? How is How would we consider him a hopeless person, someone who has no hope? Well, he is sentenced to die. That's obvious, right? He's being crucified. He is a criminal. Now, if we were to look in uh, Matthew, we are told he's a thief. He's a robber. That's why he's being crucified. Possibly, this is a little interjection here, but possibly a murderer. Uh, as we know from other places in the New Testament, uh, there was a man who was released that day who was supposed to be crucified, someone by the name of Barabbas who was a murderer. Possibly these other two were a part of this little baby gang that Barabbas had, and they were wrapped up not just in a robbery, but in murders. Well, we don't know that, but it is possible. And we're also told in Matthew, not here, but it's important for us to know this, 
But if we were to look back in Matthew, we would see that both thieves at one point, or at some point, in, during the crucifixion, both of them were hurling insults at Jesus. It wasn't just one of them, but both of them were. And he was included in that. He was a societal reject. He's, he's being crucified. He, he's low life. Who would care about this man? Who would really care if he died? Consider, we don't even know his name. Nowhere in the New Testament does it tell us his name. He's a non-entity. He's that low. We just don't know. And he has no appeals left. This isn't, well, you know, I'm right on my last leg. I still have hope that maybe Caesar would commute my sentence and I'll, I'll get to go home. No, he's past that. He's nailed to a cross. This is it. He has no last appeal. Now, we struggle if we have fight left in us, don't we, right? I mean, if someone's trying to drown you, you'll, you'll fight them off because you're trying to survive, you're trying to live, because you still have this hope in you. When we are, when we are relying on our own abilities, it, it's perhaps a false hope, but as long as we still have that one little inch where we feel like there's something that we can do, we will do that. We'll, we'll put it in, that as long as there's that fight left in us. But when God strips even that away, when he says, I'm taking it all from you. There's nothing that you will be able to do. When we are left hopeless in and of ourselves, that is, we must look outward, must look to someone else. And God will do this. He will bring you to the point of hopelessness. When you have come to the end of yourself, whether it's just in life or certainly spiritually. Think of the rich young ruler. Again, if you know the, your New Testament stories, right? He comes to Jesus and he says, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, these are the things I've done. How, how am I? I'm, I'm good, right? I, I can pretty much be assured that God's going to receive me. I've done all these things since my childhood. I, I've got pretty good pedigree. And Jesus says, hey, that's, he doesn't even go against what his list is. He just says, hey, that's great. Sell everything you've got. Come follow me. And heaven awaits you. He says, it's all good. Yeah, sell everything you've got. And if you, if you remember, he, he leaves. Matter of fact, we're told he goes away with great sorrow. Why? Because he owned a lot. He says, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying... That which I put great value in is worthless when it comes to spiritual things, to heavenly things, to, to let all that go. And then even the disciples don't get it yet. They're like, oh, then who can be saved? If this guy can't, what hope is there for the rest of us? And if you remember right with, with man, you know, things may be impossible with God. All things are possible. In what he's speaking about salvation there. So who then can be saved? Well, earlier in Luke, in Luke 5:32, Jesus makes the statement, 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, and really, those who think they're righteous. I haven't come to those who feel like they've got it all together, but those who are sinners to repent. Those who know they're in need. Those who know that spiritually they are helpless. Now, I don't hang, hang out with my doctor. Matter of fact, I don't even know my doctor's name. I used to, but we changed doctors when we moved. I don't even know his name. Never met him. We've done video conferences a couple times, but thanks to COVID, that's all we've done. Like I said, I don't even know his name. But I will seek him out when I've got a problem. When I've come to the point where ibuprofen doesn't help me anymore. When I know it's, I'm beyond what I can do. Then, and only then, will I seek him out. In James 4.10, James says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Right? It's when we come to the point of humbling ourselves, when we know that we need another. And that's where this man is at. He's come to the place of hopelessness. And there is true, authentic hope that is appealing, and it changes him, which is what we will see next. But he is to the point of hopelessness. You must get there first. If you don't feel that you're hopeless spiritually, you will never see Christ. You never will. But hope begins at hopelessness. And secondly, hope realized is evidenced by transformation. Hope realizes evidence by transmission. So what happens to this man? Turn to, keep your finger here, but turn to John 3 for just a moment. It's important for us to, oh, I'm going the wrong way. A story that you're probably familiar with, uh, Nicodemus Coming to Jesus at night, Nicodemus was one of the teachers of Israel, and uh, he wants to know that he, too, is in with God. And this, where Jesus says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. you got to be born from above. Or you can't even see the kingdom of God. We're not even talking about the internet. You, gotta, you can't even see the, the, the kingdom of God. But notice what he says. Because Nicodemus still doesn't get it. Jesus says, uh, beginning of verse 5, this is John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Now, here's a great illustration. Hope it st sticks with you. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from, where it is going, why, why are you bringing up the wind all of a sudden, Jesus? Well, he tells us, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, all we have right now open is the, the back door. We don't have windows here. But if we had a big window right here, 
and we looked out that window, would we be able to tell if it's windy outside? Yes. How would we know that? You can participate at this point. You see the wind? No. What do we see? You have to speak up a little louder. I'm old. You might, might see the trees moving around, right? If it's strong enough, I don't know if we have any leaves here. Probably not, because it's all pine here. But right. So, but we see the effects of the wind, right? If it's windy, if there if there's no wind blowing, we'd say no, it's not windy out because there's no effects of the wind. You don't see the wind. Nor can we tell the wind blow that way. Now, there's sometimes when I'm sitting around the fire, I kind of say, want to say, blow that way. The smoke goes that way. But even then, you can kind of say, oh, I want to sit over here because it seems to be blowing that way. But we can't control the wind. That's one of Jesus' points here. The, the Spirit of God is sovereign as he works. We can't tell the Spirit, Spirit, go there, do that. Spirit, go over that and open that person's heart. The Spirit of God is in control. But the second part is just as important, and what, what I want us to kind of understand here is, how do we know that the Spirit of God has worked on an individual's heart is because you see the effects of the Spirit in their life. If someone says, I'm a follower of Christ, I've trusted in Christ, there ought to be some change in their life. Doesn't mean you hit it perfect every time. We'll talk about that this week. But there's an effect. And in this man, who remains nameless to this day, this thief, this robber, this criminal who's being crucified, we see change. We see change. And I think these are important. So we're going to look at five marks in this man's life, at least, of, ch of a changed heart, that the Spirit of God clearly has done a work in his life. First of all, he rebukes the other thief. Right? Verses 39 and 40. It says, one of the criminals uh, who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him. By the way, that hurling there is uh, continued action. So it's not like he just took one shot at Jesus verbally. It's like he's over and over and over again <coughs> hurling abuse at Jesus. What kind of heart does that? You're dying. And you only have a few hours, maybe a few days, because this can last quite a few days. And what do you do with your last breath? I'm going to ridicule another man being crucified. That's a dark heart. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered towards his abuse, or his verbal abuse, and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you're under the same senses of condemnation? He develops an eternal perspective. He calls sin, sin. And the word, the other, I love that uh, Luke uses this when he says, the other answered. It's another of a different kind. There's a couple different words that uh, is in the Greek in terms of the other. Uh, if when I bought these glasses, I bought two pair in case 
you know, I lost one, and it was the same frame, the same prescription. I could say, oh, I have a, a, another, there's this other pair that I have, meaning identical. But if I had something, another that was, let's say, sunglasses, the one even prescription, right? I said, oh, I bought this pair and another, this other pair. It means it's a different one. It's of a different kind. Well, that's what the, the word that Luke uses here. He's a, He's different than the other one. Well, how's that, Luke? Just a few minutes ago, a few hours ago, he was identical to this guy. They were both condemned, both criminals, both were abusing verbally Jesus because there's been a change. There's been a change. And we see it first in that he rebukes the, the, the one the, uh, in verse 39. Uh, of what he has done. He calls sin, sin. Secondly, he defends Christ and recognizes who Christ is. He defends Christ and recognizes who Christ is. We see this in verse 41 and 42. As he continues this, uh, as he's speaking to that other criminal, he says, and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man... Jesus has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, and he was saying to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. First, he proclaims Christ's innocence. This is a rebuke not just to the, the, the criminal who he's speaking to, but to everyone else who's there, right? Because... We, we saw earlier there were the, the crowds, the religious leaders, the soldiers are all hurling this abuse. And here you have this nameless thief who's saying, this man has done nothing wrong. This man is innocent. And he recognizes Jesus as a king. And he said, how in the world do you get that? Well, because of what he says. In verse 42, at the end of verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I don't have a kingdom. None of you, as far as I know, have a kingdom. Because I'm not a king. The only one who has a kingdom is a king. And somehow he recognizes Jesus is a king. Consider to whom he is making this observation. Jesus would have been stripped naked. He's been beaten beyond recognition, bloodied, mocked, humiliated. He's dying, and he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Great sovereign. Has he lost his mind? How does he come to know that Jesus is king? Is it perhaps the taunting that everyone is saying? Is it perhaps the sign that read the reason why he was being crucified, the charge? That's why it's hanging over his head. This is why this man's being crucified. This is the king of the Jews. Did somehow, even in the mocking of those who crucified him, the Spirit of God uses it in his life and says, that's not a lie. He really is a king. 
But somehow he comes to this realization, Jesus is a king. Was it the fact that Jesus responds or his silence from those who are mocking him? Is it because of what Jesus says earlier when he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing? Is it just from how he composes himself and his response? We don't know, but somehow, somehow, as the Spirit of God is working in this man who has no hope, he recognizes that Jesus is king. The thief uses his last few hours of life not to rebuke, but to exalt Christ. That's what he's doing with his numbered hours. John Calvin, the great French theologian, said, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked yet would remain silent. Now, it's a different context, but I think it fits here. That here's a man who's, there's been a change in his life. He's been a follower of Christ for a couple of hours, maybe. And that change brings about that he speaks truth. He speaks truth. So he rebukes the other thief, he defends Christ and recognizes who Christ is. Thirdly, he admits his own sin. He admits his own sin. We we already read this, but let me read it again. Verse 41. We indeed are suffering justly, properly, what we ought to, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He doesn't try to hide it, does he? See, because those who are truly converted, those that the Spirit of God has worked into your heart, readily admit their sin. He doesn't try to rationalize it at all. Well, you know, it's really society's fault. Because, you know, I just wasn't loved enough. Or I wasn't given the opportunity I should have. That's why I turned to a life of crime. So I'm not really the one to blame. He doesn't minimize it. Well, you know, I didn't steal as much as other people did. No, he says, yeah, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I I, I have no other response, but I'm guilty. It's almost as if he's saying, if Christ is innocent, Here's this holy man next to me. He's innocent. What does that make me? Guilty. I'm guilty. Not just before men, before the Roman law, but I'm guilty before God. So we see this transformation, this evidence of transformation. One rebukes the other. Thief defends Christ and recognizes who Christ is, admits his own sin, and accepts the due punishment, or the consequences. Accepts the due punishment. Also, verse 41, notice he says, for uh, we are receiving what we deserve. This is what we deserve. His punishment 
he recognizes that his punishment was in direct correlation to his sin. He hasn't lost his mind anyway. He's not happy he's being crucified. Don't read that into it. He doesn't desire the consequences, but he accepts the fact that this is the consequence of my sin. It's part of repentance. Remember Zacchaeus last night, right? Part of his repentance was, I'm going to give back where I've defrauded people. The very people who he's probably going to be giving money back to are the very people who hate him because his sin, right? He had sinned against them. He's like, I'm going to give back to, to you. That's just part of the consequence. This does not somehow trump the grace of God. This doesn't mean, well, if there's consequences, then apparently God's grace did not find me out. No, 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 not at all. Scripture is very clear on this. There is grace. There is forgiveness. But sometimes in this life, there are natural consequences to our sin. So coming to Christ does not necessarily mean those consequences removed. Sometimes they are. But sometimes our sin just has natural consequences. It does not negate somehow God's grace. And finally, he trusts and believes in Christ. He trusts and believes in Christ. Right? So it's, it's not just enough to know, yeah, I am a sinner. Yeah, I'm getting the, my due consequences of my sin. I'm just going to leave it there. No, it's that turning to Christ, trusting in Christ. Verse 42, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me. Remember me. Who would remember such a man? Again, a, a nameless face among criminals. He comes to the king, so to speak. Remember me. Now this is a, a, a remembering in, in the fullest sense. I'm going to go back to Old Testament. We're actually going to be talking about Joseph later on this week. But for those of you who remember the story, Joseph's in, just cut to the little part in his life, well, not little part, but the part in his life, he's put into prison for something he did not do. And there are two people who are also being, uh, who are also in jail with Joseph. They both have dreams, and he interprets the dream for them. Do you remember that? Okay. And one has a, a favorable interpretation, the other one less favorable. But do you remember what Joseph, his one request to those men were? He says, you're, all, you're both going to be taken up from here. You're going to leave. And he says, when you do, what do what's his request? Remember. remember me. Not just, oh yeah, remember that Joseph guy? That's great. Remember in a way that you will speak about me before Pharaoh. 
that there will be, when, remember me, I, I, I'm going to need your help. That kind of remember. I'm asking you to do something for me down the road. That kind of remember. Jesus, I'm putting my hope in you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. No other request of Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, Jesus, get yourself off the cross and take me off the cross too. He doesn't go there. Mm -mm. He's looking beyond that. I want something more than that, Jesus. This, this is faith. I mean, this is faith. The Bible defines faith for us in this way in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Had this man entered into the kingdom of God? No. Has he seen the kingdom of God? No. But he's seen the king of the kingdom of God. And his hope, his faith, is anchored to the hope of the future in Christ, in Christ alone. So all of these, these five, show us that there's been a change in this man. A man who was hopeless at one point now is full of hope. He has been free to hope because all self-reliance has been stripped away. He had nothing and is putting everything into another, into Jesus. Brings us to our third and last point for this morning. Hope is assured by the king of paradise. Assured by the king of paradise. What hope does this man have? Jesus replies, right, verse 43, Truly, I say to you, you shall be with me, you shall be with me, uh, today you shall be with me in paradise. First of all, that word truly, truly, uh, this is your, your Greek lesson for the morning. The word truly is the word that we often translate, amen, or amen, if you want to put a little flavor to it. And you say, well, then why doesn't it say amen? Well, because in Greek, it either typically is going to appear at the beginning of the sentence or the end of the sentence. If it's at the end of the sentence, that's when, when you're reading in your New Testament, and it'll say da 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 amen. That's why right at the end of the prayer, amen. What does that mean? It basically, when it's appearing at the end of the sentence, it means, so be it. I agree with this. When it's at the beginning of the sentence, it has more of this sense of truly, uh, good old King James, verily, verily, you can count on this. It was often used in oaths or binding promises, which I think is very fitting here. Jesus says, you can count on this. Our modern-day vernacular, you can tank this to the bank. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Most assuredly, 
Consider the hope that Christ is giving to him in this one statement. Four aspects, I believe, that Jesus gives to him. One, truly, we would say the certainty. I'm going to give you some nice alliteration. Haven't done that yet since we've been here, but you get some alliteration here. Certainly, or the certainty. For sure this is going to happen. Truly, verily, verily, amen. Count on it. Certainty. Today, you shall be with me in here. Today, the closeness of it. Now, for us sitting in this room, that may not seem like that big of a deal. The closeness of this reality. But crucifixion could take up to nine days for someone to die. You don't die from bleeding to death. You die from suffocation. Because the weight of your body, when you're you're slumped down, presses in on your lungs and you can't exhale. It's not that you can't inhale, you can't exhale. So what do you do? You pull yourself up. Can you imagine that? Pushing right on your feet, then nailed down. And we all know, right? Nailed doesn't go right there. Because that would just rip right through because you have nothing holding into. But if you feel right there, that's a perfect place put a nail. And you would pull yourself up. Breathe, breathe, breathe. And you exhaust it. Pull yourself up. Imagine doing this over and over again. That's why they go around and they broke the legs. They weren't just trying to be cruel. That's how you hasten the death. You break the legs so they can't keep pushing themselves up. They've only been, up, been on the cross for Six hours or so? Was it six, nine hours, somewhere in there? So as far as he knows, he's got a few more days of the slow, agonizing death. And Jesus says, you can count on it today. Today. The closeness of it. Third, he says, you. Today, you. What we could call the chosen population the chosen population. When he says you, is he talking about both of those criminals? There were two of them there. No. He says, I'm guaranteeing you will be with me in paradise today. You, who not too long ago were hopeless, have every assurance of hope, of being in my kingdom. And finally, what I would call the character of this hope. He says, you shall be with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise. I'm not just going to remember you when I'm in paradise. I'm not just going to put you in a place in paradise, but the very essence of my kingdom is the relationship that we have. You will be with me in paradise. This went so far beyond his request. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Oh, I can do better than that. Truly, today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's 
kind of bring some of this together here. Just some concluding thoughts of this free to hope. First of all, if ever there was an example of faith alone, it's here. Faith alone meaning that it's not anything you do. It's not Jesus and something else. It's Jesus and all Jesus. The faith in Christ and Christ alone. This poor man had no time to, to be baptized. Now, I don't want you all going home and saying, Max said, I, you know, baptism doesn't mean anything. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there are some circles that would say, your baptism, right, is, unless you're baptized, you're, you, you have no hope of being saved. He, he didn't have that chance. He can't point to it and say, I remember working with a, a pastor one time who realized, like myself, had been baptized really before he ever came to faith. It was just part of what you did. He decided he wanted to be baptized. He was a pastor. He says, I want to be baptized because I wasn't baptized as a believer. I want to in obedience. His mother said she didn't understand that. She said, I still have your certificate. I can show you. You're good. You're in. That does not add to it. Look how many days of church attendance, perfect church attendance this thief had. That's sarcasm too. (laughs) Zero. Zero. Look all the good things he did for the poor and the health of Clearly you can see where I'm going with this. That's not to say those things aren't good and those things aren't right fruit of the Spirit and so forth. All I'm saying is he had nothing to point to. He wasn't the rich young ruler to say, look at these things that I've done. He's saying, I come to you with nothing in my hand. Just my faith, just my hope in someone else. Secondly, as a challenge to all of us, the thief confessed Christ before men. Do we? Do we? Because that's the normal act of a child of God. You don't have to have a theological degree. He didn't. What did he confess? What he knew. I'm a sinner. So are you. He's not. Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. That's what he knew. And thirdly, I've raised the question, I've kind of answered this earlier on, why does Luke include this event? And this is where kind of the connection with last night. Because if ever there was someone who was lost, it was him. Right? Why did Jesus come? He says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I, I mean, this guy probably even more than Zacchaeus. This guy's completely lost. And by lost, we're not simply talking about misplaced, but without and beyond hope. We even use this in our modern language when we say something like, oh, they were lost at sea. Again, we don't just mean we couldn't find them. That's probably part of it, too. But lost at sea means 
well, they probably died, right? But they, there was no more hope. They, they, they're, they're beyond being saved. See, the thief was paying his debt to society. Christ was paying the debt, the thief's debt to God at that moment. Now, some of you may be saying, well, this is great. This means that I can wait to that two hours before I'm going to die, and then I'm going to give my life to Christ. Never met such a gambler, if that's where you're at. The, the Puritans used to say about what we call deathbed conversions, I thought they summed it up perfectly, so I'm just going to say what they said. There is one, the one that we just read, there is one such case recorded that none need despair. In other words, we have an example given to us so that perhaps you are on your deathbed. Perhaps your grandfather's on his deathbed who hated Christ his whole life. Then in his last hour, he knows he's a sinner and gives his life to Christ. Do you, can you have confidence that he's with Christ, that Christ has forgiven him? Yes, because we have an example of it right here. But the Puritans go on. There's, only, there's one such case recording that none need despair, but only one in Scripture that none might presume. What they would say is, that's not the regular pattern. Don't presume that you will have that moment of consciousness 30 minutes before you die and say, you know, I'm going to live my life the way I want to, and then I'll give my life to Christ. If Christ has set you free indeed, as we have defined it, free from bondage of sin, the guilt of sin, the shame of sin, you are free to hope. You have every reason, every reason, to hope. Christian hope, biblical hope, is a settled assurance. R.C. Spohl once put it this way. I felt it was pretty good. He said, hope is faith looking forward. It's our faith looking forward to that which we know to be true. The writer of Hebrews Hebrews 10, 23 says, and we're, we're going to talk about this later in the week. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Christ is going to be faithful. Christ was faithful to the thief on the cross. He will be faithful to you. He will be faithful to me. We, read, uh, we sang it this morning. This is great because we didn't even plan it. I mean, I didn't plan it. I mean, you guys planned it. How deep the Father's love for us, the one stands and behold the man upon the cross, speaking of Christ. My sin, my sin. Can you say that? It was my sin, not just sin, but my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. As we were seeing that this morning, I thought, if you can't identify 
personally identify as, yeah, that would have been me. Or the criminal on the cross saying things, hurling abuse at Christ. If you can't say, no, that was me, then I don't think you really understand the gospel. I don't think you really understand your own sinfulness. If you can't say, no, that, that's me. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We're going to talk more about this as we go on to the week. But part of that freedom is it's nothing more for you to add. Because it is finished. It is completely finished. There's a difference between worldly hope and biblical hope when we use those terms. There really is, and you need to, maybe this is your, your takeaway from, uh, for this morning. Worldly hope is hope when there is still a chance, a possibility. Right? When we say, well, I sure hope, that means there's still a chance of it. If I say, uh, man, I sure hope tomorrow morning when I wake up, uh, that I'm Batman, I'm Bruce Wayne. <laughs> you know that's not going to happen. At the very least because of the whole money issue. <laughs> if you say, I hope the food is good at lunch, that's pretty good odds. <laughs> I hope the weather's nice today. Okay, that's pretty good. Well, that's a worldly hope. I sure hope she sits next to me during lunch. I know for some of you, you can scratch that. (laughs) (laughs) Biblical hope is when all possibility is gone in and of ourselves. That's biblical hope. If you were to say, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad when I'm before God, that's a worldly hope. That's not a biblical hope. I hope I'm not as bad as someone else and God is okay with that. That's not biblical hope. Our hope before God is when all hope is lost. Our hope is in another. If you know the good old hymn, my hope is built, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Both of those are important. His blood, his death, his righteousness, his perfect life of obedience to the Father. I dare not trust the sweetest flame, but wholly, completely lean on Jesus' name. Another huge difference, and this is what we'll end with, between worldly hope and biblical hope is worldly hope even if it, if it was there for a time, can be lost. Let me just give you one illustration. Uh, I know it's hard to accept it as, you know, the man that's standing before you, but when I was your age, I was somewhat athletic. Uh, I'm the youngest of four kids. I was bigger than my two older brothers. I'm pretty sure after the first two, my dad was really counting on me to be the one who was athletic. And I was. I just never did anything with it. 
But if at some point I had decided, you know what? I'm going to train, I'm going to practice, and I'm going to be a major league baseball player. Or I want, I want to go into the NFL. Don't want to, want to talk about the NBA. I wasn't even close to that. But with the other two, I had a shot at it. And I trained, and I was, you know, lettered in high school, and I got a scholarship to college. Right? I was on the trajectory, and then I get in a car accident, and I'm paralyzed the rest of my life. Does that happen to people? Yeah. And that hope, that worldly hope that they had is now gone. Does that mean their, their life's over with? No. But I'm just saying that one hope, right, of being a professional athlete is now gone. It's been taken from them. Because that was a worldly hope that can be taken. Biblical hope, biblical hope is eternal. It cannot be taken away. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. I was talking with one of the volunteers last night. Some of you guys are, well, you're all young. Maybe you haven't lived long enough and maybe you haven't sinned deeply enough to feel that. But you will. I can guarantee it, you will. And I can guarantee you, Satan will tempt you to despair. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Our hope is secure. Where no moth can destroy, no thief can steal. Charles Spurgeon, got to end with Spurgeon, sorry, said that he was so certain of his salvation, so certain of his salvation, that he could swing out over the flames of hell on a cornstalk. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of Spurgeon, he was a hefty guy. Any cornstalk, you know, over hell or not. But he said he was so certain he could swing out over the fires of hell on a cornstalk, look Satan in the face, and say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's our only hope only hope. Let's pray. Our dear God, we thank you that you have placed this story, true story, of a man who had no hope. A man who was caught into the midst of the sin not just of being a robber, but of ridiculing the very son of glory. And yet you saved him. Not because there was anything good in him. You had every right, every just 
justice to condemn him, for he was condemned by both God and man. Yet you were pleased to save him. You were pleased to open his heart. The Spirit of God moved where he pleased and opened his heart to see his own sinfulness and to see the beauty of Christ. Lord, that is my prayer for these young men and women this morning. Some of them have been brought to that point. Lord, may you stoke the fire of hope in their lives to know that, as Paul says, there is no condemnation right now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And pray that you open the hearts of those who are still relying upon their own goodness or have not seen their hopelessness. Lord, I pray that you would spare them some of the great consequences that their sin might bring to them, that you would show mercy and grace even there. But Lord, as the great writer John Newton said, that your grace taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Cement this hope, this confident assurance found in Christ alone in our hearts today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.